Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. This morning I was fooling around uh, tuning one of my fiddles, and uh, I was digging around for some rosin in the case, and I found an old pitch pipe. This is a little, it's basically like a one-note harmonica. <whistles> Got to figure out which end to blow. <whistles> and it is marked on the side A. It says A. So that's A. And it got me thinking about all the tuning gizmos that are so popular these days. And, and it also got me thinking about, there may be some, um, um, cognitive dissonance or perhaps, uh, there some internal conflict perhaps between when I think about bluegrass and we could roll into that old time music, you know, old time string band stuff, and, you know, if you're a bluegrass musician, you're, there's probably a reason that you're into it, that you, that it resonates with you. Well, there probably isn't. There definitely is a reason. And I think one of these reasons is this sort of, um, psychological desire for the past, that there was something, you know, in the golden age of the past that is more attractive than the future, let's just say. So it's sort of, it's sort of like the Luddites, you know, it's, you might call bluegrass a um, form of neo-Luddism expressed musically because we like bluegrassers typically like to do things the old way. Now that doesn't mean there aren't new things in bluegrass. I certainly there are, but bluegrass is founded upon a, an, a music that was formed long before most of us were alive. And it was based upon some other forms of music, which definitely were around a, a lot longer than, than any of us were. And, and the traditional, um, old style, you might say retro, all that, that kind of reminds me of, you know, the 1950s or something, but it's a very, um, backward looking, like trying to maintain some connection with the past using acoustic instruments, you know, uh, and the instruments that are played in bluegrass, the, uh, while there are great instruments produced today, most of them are designed up upon instruments that were made prior to World War II. So there's this, there's almost like this golden age, which we, by playing a mandolin and playing it acoustically, and you have an F5 style mandolin, and it may have been made in 2015 in Montana or something, but 
it's patterned after mandolins made in the 1920s. So there's, uh, even in the clothing, you know, the, the dress that you see bands wear harkens back to an earlier time. Same goes with the microphones. Like, you know, the, uh, the classic sure Elvis mic or, um, these, what are these mics called now that, uh, ear trumpet labs is putting out all these sort of, you know, retro appearing microphones and they're very popular hats, beards, uh, you know, like it's like the whole bluegrass thing is oftentimes the, is about singing about things which really don't happen in our lives. You know, <laughs> you play woe mule woe, but uh, you don't have a mule and probably never will. Um, how many people, you know, how many university professors who are riding their $600 bicycle in the bike lane back and forth to work each day and packing along their vegan lunch and, uh, take up claw hammer banjo and learn to play cluck old hen, but have never had any hens and certainly never wrung the neck of a hen, you know? Uh, so we, we have this kind of mixture of the modern and the old and a lot of bluegrass is, is I think kind of an, a subconscious attempt to preserve the the better parts of the good old days. And I'm sure if you talk to anybody over the age of 80 about the good old days, they can recount in person that the good old days weren't so good necessarily. I mean, when you think about uh, lack of refrigeration and um, lack of antibiotics and things like this, you know, the good old days sometimes are, you know, given more credit than, than they should have. You know, I think when I like when I was a kid, I read this book about the mountain men and about uh, Jim Bridger and Hugh Glass. And and I just, you know, when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, I was I just wished I had been born back then. You know, when I could just explore the Rocky Mountains and trap beavers and, you know, whatever, stuff like that. But if you if you study the reality of what those men were doing, it was nothing like that. I mean, they were engaged in those activities, but, uh, you know, the way they felt about it was a lot like the way, you know, a steel worker feels when he punches the clock and heads into the mill every day. You know, this was a means to an end. Many of those trappers out there were just trying to make some money so that they could, you know, open a hardware store in St. Louis or something. But bluegrass, I think, is a has a tendency to attempt to preserve the better parts of the past of of a certain type of music. And, you know, we do that. We it's different than rock and roll. Maybe maybe today, you know, a lot of rock bands are trying to preserve that classic period of, of rock and rollness or whatever that came out in the 50s. But when you get a bunch of bluegrass pickers together at a festival or at a jam or something, they're not dragging in their amps and stuff. You know, everybody's just pulling their cases out of their instrument to get their fiddle out and they tighten up the bow hair and rosin up the bow. 
Same darn thing that Uncle Penn did. It's exactly the same. So, so the actions of, you know, getting five people together on a porch to play bluegrass is exactly like it would have been in 1940. But what's different now is pretty much, I, I, I was at a jam last, uh, I guess it was about two weeks ago. I was at a jam and as everybody's arriving, getting their instruments out, um, each player was tuning and everybody there had a clip on tuner on the peg head of their instrument, except one guy who showed up and he forgot his and he borrowed mine. I had one too. So we're using this clip on tuner to tune and that's not how it would have been done in the old days. So that's one part we've dropped. In the old days, you know, you'd say, uh, hey, uh, give me a G chord over there. Give me a G chord. You'd plunk, 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 get your G, and you would tune to each other. Or in the old days, even when I started playing in the 1970s, if I got my banjo out to practice my banjo, I didn't check the tuning against a tuning machine. I you know, check the tuning against itself. I just wanted the instrument in tune with itself. The only time I ever needed to be in standard tuning was if I was going to play with someone else. And actually I didn't even have to be in standard tuning. Then we just need to be together. We need to be in tune with each other. And so I guess what I'm, I'm sort of making the case that I just want you to consider that Letting little devices um, stand between you and the other musicians, I think might you might miss something. I think, you know, uh, that group that I jammed with a couple weeks ago would have probably been in tune better if they tuned to each other. And went through that process because when everybody's got a clip on tuner, everybody tunes at the same time because they don't actually have to hear what's going on and they do not hear what's going on and they're tuning visually. And there is no guarantee that the banjo player is in tune with the guitar player. The banjo player's gizmo tells him that he's in tune. And so he says, okay, good enough. I'm in tune. And the guitar player has his own tuner and he at the very same time, I mean, you listen to people tune today in a jam session and it's just, it's just utter chaos. Everybody's doing their own thing. And I, I'm badly prone to uh, want to actually hear my instrument while I tune. Yeah, I've got the tuner clamped on there and I'll, I'll look at it. But for example, I was playing the Dobro and there are octaves, you know? You've got two G's, two B's, and two D's. So I want those octaves to be locked together, beatless, pure. And, you know, it's probably, a, you know, a, uh, I'm saddled with this because of, you know, I've, I've done a lot of piano tuning, professional piano tuning over the years. And, uh, you know, you get kind of hung up on uh, being extremely precise. So I, so I can thump the the low G and look at the tuner and the tuner says dead on. And then I play the G above it, the third string and the tuner is reporting right on. 
And then I'm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. If, if they'll just stop plunking on that banjo and that guitar and that bass. And if, the, if I'm just waiting for a moment of silence and then I play them together and just listen to them. And I find that they're not together, that they're beating and they're not in tune with each other. And that's just me tuning my instrument to itself. And also on the dobro, I like to have my B strings just a shade flat, a little closer to pure for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into here. But I want to be able to hear my instrument and you can't hear your instrument when there's all this chaos going on. It would be much better, you know, and sometimes in these jam situations, it's not just all the tuning that, and strumming and warming up and all that kind of stuff that people do that interfere with your ability to hear your own instrument. But sometimes it's the crowd too, and there's nothing you can do about that except, you know, maybe go out on the patio, you know, where the smokers go out. Maybe just walk out there before the thing, sit down and do a really good job of fine tuning using your tuner and then double checking everything with your ear, really hear it. And then you can walk right back in and just sit down and play, but you're not allowed that luxury. If everybody's banging away on their instruments and, and the crowd is making a lot of racket. So I think what I'm saying is one of the mistakes I think many people do is just trust the machine and go with it when they could be more in tune if they could actually hear it. So I'm going to spend a little time in this episode talking about some of the many tuning gizmos that we rely upon. And I will be the first to admit that there are times when that's the best you can do. There have been times when, you know, let's say, let's say you're somebody asked you to get up and play with them. And they're up there jamming. They're in the middle of a song and you're in the wings waiting to come on. Well, you want to be in tune with them. So you get over there with your tuning machine and you tune to standard because a 440, because you assume that they are in a 440 and you walk on and you play. You don't really have a chance to ask the guitar player, Hey, you know, could you play me an a minor chord, you know, and then you adjust your strings. You don't have time for that. But you do have time, you know, while you're backstage to verify that your mandolin string unisons are actually nice and beatless and pure. Um, I'm just going to tell you straight up, you cannot tune mandolin pairs of strings. And for you non-mandolin players, you have four notes, G, D, A, E, and, but you've got two strings for each. And in theory, both of the strings should be vibrating at precisely the same rate. In other words, the same note. So if one of your G strings is a little sharp to the other one, the, 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 the perceived note will be a little harsh and you'll hear some beating in there. And, and this is a, uh, this is the thing that makes a piano tuner a good piano tuner. Well, there are other things too, but in pianos, the majority of the notes throughout the piano have three strings for each note and you want them all the same. Well, with the mandolin, I think I played mandolin for a very, very long time. And I just like the, the sound of mandolins when their unisons are extremely 
just as close as they can be to sounding like one string. It's unison, one sound. And I've, you know, you can read junk on Wikipedia about, oh, you know, sometimes uh, the strings are deliberately, you know, left out to create a, you know, a special effect, or that's why there's two strings. You know. And I'll tell you this, as a piano tuner, if you like that honky-tonk piano sound, that old, you know, that, you know, uh, Tex walks into the bar and, you know, swing the swinging doors and he's got his six gun on his hip and there's the piano player with his uh you know sleeves rolled up with them little armbands and he's over there playing you know um uh, oh Susanna on the piano that old timey you know cowboy movie piano sound that rinky tink piano sound you can achieve that by that exact method by tune all your center strings on a piano correctly and then take all the ones on the right and raise them just a tiny bit sharp and the ones on the left a little bit flat in other words put it a little out of tune throughout and you'll get that sound anyway enough about that I, the point i'm trying to make is this visual versus auditory tuning i mean this this bugs me what if I said to you, um, and anybody that's ever shopped for paint knows exactly what I'm talking about, looking at paint samples. You go over to Home Depot and you're, you're looking through the swatches at basically white. You're looking at white paint. You know, you're thinking about painting the bedroom white, but which shade of white? Well, there's 50 shades of white, apparently, you know. And if you've ever mixed paint, you know, professionally, but, you know, I worked at a Kmart one time when I was in high school and I had to mix paint. And, you know, you'd get that gallon of base white and you'd add in a half ounce of blue and a half ounce of this other, you know, green or yellow or something. And then bang the lid on, stick it in the shaker and it would come out that, you know, that little tint that's slightly different that off-white that eggshell that but if you've ever shopped for paint you know there are a lot of different shades of white but you know the casual observer would just go oh that wall is painted white but imagine this imagine that when you're going there to shop for paint they don't have the swatches what they have is a set of headphones and you put on the headphones and they play you a tone. I'm going to use this tuning fork. I play you a tone. And based upon the sound of that tone, you decide if that is the color you want. In other words, you're using sound to represent light. You know, I, you know I'm sure it could be done if we were trained in the in the use of sound to recognize color and intensity of light and all that kind of thing um but if you think about tuning visually if you're just looking down at that snark tuner and either you can't hear or you don't bother to listen to the instrument itself you're just going on with those little lights and else you know <laughs> liquid crystal display and blinking lights and all that if you're relying visually to tune it's as absurd as choosing paint by the sound of the paint i mean it just doesn't make sense and then we all we tune visually and then we all sit down to play and we're playing sound 
And, you know, everything that every every judgment that is made about your your playing is done through the ears, yours and the audience. Nobody is sitting out in the audience with a with a, a microphone and a, a spectrum analyzer checking what notes you did. They're just listening. You know, it's all done by ear. So why tune visually if you're trying to do something that's auditory? Okay, now I know there are practical reasons for it. And they're, you know, in a way, like many issues, I sit on the fence. I'm on both sides of every issue, it seems like. Because there are good points and bad points to everything. I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, the the craze of clip-on tuners has probably made um, a lot more people be closer to in tune, you know? But what I'm saying is it's also stopping countless hordes of people from ever learning the art of tuning by ear and therefore the art of close listening, real listening. I did an episode on real listening. I just think it stands in the way of that. And I'm going to talk in a minute about some of the, uh, what I have found to be the flaws in using electronic tuners. Now I'm not saying you should throw your electronic tuner away. It's a useful tool as a piano tuner. One of the, one of the, uh, sort of badges that, a tuner wears is sometimes a customer will, you know, they've done a little reading on the internet or, you know, they know something about piano tuning. So they're going to, sometimes they'll ask you questions, you know, like, well, do you tune by ear or do you tune with a tuning machine? And my answer is, and it's the truth is I say, I use both. You know, there I am on the fence again. I say, I do use a tuning fork to, uh, you know, establish my initial pitch that I'm going to build from. And then as I tune the temperament, I'm tuning by ear, but I also use an electronic tuner. I use a, a Peterson VS one strobe tuner that I just use to confirm what my ear is telling me. And then once I leave that temperament, which is usually about an octave and a fifth, then it's by ear all the way out to the ends. Um, there just is no way you can use an electronic tuner to make a piano sound good because tuning is not about numbers. It's about the sound and every piano is different. And I, you know, if that's true, then, then every guitar is also different because they're both basically the same thing. They're stringed instruments with wooden sound boards with different scales. And what I'm saying about piano tuning is true for all bluegrass instruments. That they must be tweaked by ear if you really want them to sound good. I'll give you one example for if you're a guitar player or you've, you've certainly been around guitar players. If you tune your blue, typical bluegrass, bluegrass guitar, flat top, sometimes the action's a little high so you can play it good and hard and get that good tone out of that old Martin or whatever. If you tune that guitar to the tuner, 
and tune the low E string dead on to the tuner. And then play your G chord. There is a good chance, higher than 50%, that the fretted third fret note on the sixth string, which is a G note, which you play all the time in a G chord playing bluegrass, that that G will be sharp. Just a hair. Because you're stretching the string down to the fret, and you'd say, well, you know, if the guitar were adjusted properly and the intonation were set, and, you know, well, on a, on a flat-top guitar, you can't easily adjust the intonation. You can adjust the curvature of the neck with a truss rod if you have one, and old Martins don't have truss rods. Uh, but you can raise and lower the strings by raising and lowering the saddle. And there is, you could compensate the saddle by um, adjustments to the top edge of the saddle. But it's not like an electric guitar where you can, you know, you can, or an electric bass, you can crank those, those saddle blocks back and forth a half an inch if you want to. On an acoustic guitar, you can't do that unless you want to, you know, pry the bridge off and re-glue it on in, in a different spot, you're sort of stuck with it. But I'm going to tell you, if your E is in tune, your low E is dead in tune, your G is probably going to be a hair sharp. However, your little tuner, if you you know stick that snark on there or IntelliTouch or any one of these, which are now disposable devices, if you stick one of those on there, it may tell you it's in tune. And you'll go, great. Well, I'm saying maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should stop and listen to it. Because there are reasons why the string is going a hair sharp. So what most players do is they make that E string a hair flat. They get it dead on, and then they play their G note. And if it's sharp, they will lower that E just a hair. Not enough to make the E sound bad, but enough to make the G sound good, because they're going to play that G a lot. And they're going to play that low E string pretty much only when they hit an E minor chord. That's about the only time they're going to use that string. And so they're going to favor the G note. I mean, that's a big bass note on that guitar, and you're going to use it over and over and over and over and over. And when you go to a C chord, you're going to use that same note if you're walking that bass line back and forth across. So you can't just go by the lights. And I'm, I'll, I'll tell you why. Well, Miles, let me just get into that right now since I'm on that. The little internal circuitry of an electronic tuner and I'm just going to use, I'm going to not go back all the way to the days of the Con strobe tuner and the Peterson, the original Peterson strobe tuner that had the 12 little wheels on it. I'm not going to go all the way back to that. I'm going to go to what I would call the first generation, um, you know, pocket guitar tuners. You know, they were about the size of a deck of cards. Uh, had a microphone on them or, or a jack where you could plug your instrument into them and, you know, on off button, maybe a calibrate button and some sort of little display. And Seiko uh, had one in those days that had an, a needle, just like a VU meter on a, on a mixing board or something, you know, an actual needle moving back and forth. And if it went to the left, you were flat. And if it went to the right, you were sharp. And then the majority of these tuners like the Korg, 
did an LCD um, um, imitation of a needle. In other words, there were all these little LCD liquid crystal display segments all over this, this little, you know, one inch by inch and a half little LCD board. And, and they had little pictures of the needle. So it wasn't an actual needle, but it was just a picture of a needle. And you see those a lot. And then they added little LED lights. So there'd be a, maybe a green light in the middle that would come on if you were, if the needle, the so-called virtual needle was straight up and the light would come on. You go, I'm in tune. But uh, the Korg CA30 that I'm talking about, you know, one of those little pocket tuners, now you can probably get them for about seven ninety five. you know, copies of them. And my, my son bought a flute off of Amazon and it came with one. It looked just like the old Korg. It just pretty much the same thing. And they're just throwing them in as add-ons, you know, like they're basically free these days. But what I want to tell you is when the needle is pointing straight up, theoretically, it means the note is in tune. And if it's hard left, 90 degrees to the left, it means you're 50 cents flat. And if it's hard right, 90 degrees to the right, you're 50 cents sharp. So from straight up to straight sideways is 50 cents. So they're dividing the pitch up in cents. And a cent, by the way, is one hundredth of one semitone or half step. In other words, from C to C sharp, it's divided into 100 cents from C sharp up to D that's a hundred cents. So the display, the, the Korg had a little secret trick that you could hold down like the power button and the calibrate button as you turned it on or something. And it would light up all of the segments and it was to test the, the liquid crystal display to make sure that none of the little needle pictures were burnt out and not working. It would just light them all up. So you could see them and I counted them and I, I'm going to forget the number, but maybe there were 16, 16 little pictures of needles. So they're taking the 15, it might've, I don't know if it was, might've been 10. Anyway, they're taking the 50 cents and they're dividing it into 10 pictures. So the precision of the display cannot possibly illustrate things that fall between those two. So let's say that if the needle is pointed straight up on your L liquid crystal display needle type tuner, if it's straight up, theoretically you're in tune. Let's say you're playing an A440 and it's vibrating at 440, the needle will point straight up. But if you're a little flat, it'll jump over to the next picture of a needle. And that may be, let's say, three cents flat. Well, what if you're one and a half cents flat? What's the display going to do? It may fluctuate back and forth between, you know, straight up and the next one over. They may, they may be blinking a little bit, but how is that little gizmo making the decision of what to display? Well, it obviously has some sort of internal programming that's, you know, sensing the incoming vibration speed, the pitch, and then comparing it to some sort of table of like, you know, an A is 440 and, and so on. And 
doing a bunch of math inside the thing. And then it's saying, well, if it's one cent flat, we're going to round that up and call that in tune. And if it's one and a quarter cents flat, we're going to round that up and call that in tune too. Well, now you're one and a quarter cents flat, but you think you're in tune. And then when it goes to one and a half cents flat, it has to have some decision making in there to say, okay, one and a half, if it's exactly one and a half, we'll go up and call that in tune. If it's 1.51 cents flat, we're going to call it three cents flat. Do you get where I'm, what I'm saying? The precision of the displays is not accurate, not nearly as accurate as your brain and your ears. Now, I, I would admit there are some people who never, never be able to tune anything. There are, there are those people. But the majority of humans have, have better, the better ability to discern pitch differences than that machine can display. Now, the machine knows the pitch. It just has to display it. And it has to make some sacrifices in precision. You know, otherwise they'd have to have, you know, 50 little divisions, you know, or if you really wanted to go, you know, really, really precise, you could have 10,000 divisions. I mean, there's no rule that says you have to divide a semitone into 100 cents. You could divide it into a million cents if you want to get really crazy about all this. And then the display would outpace the human ear if you had a million divisions on there, but you don't. And a lot of these tuners, it's a lot clunkier than that. I've seen some that uh, the divisions are five cents. And let me tell you, if you're tuning your mandolin and you tune the E string and the, and the tuner says you're in, you could be as much as three cents sharp, but it still says you're in. Then you tune the other one and you could be as much as three cents flat but it's still lying to you and telling you that you're in tune. And then you play the two together and they are six cents apart. And I'm telling you, six cents is a lot. It's those two E's will sound hideous. And I always told my students, I don't care if you use a tuner, but only use it on one of those two strings. Tune the string to the tuner and say, okay, close enough. And then tune the other one to it by ear. But anyway, I just don't think people are spending enough time these days actually listening. And if you, if you have that little, that little pre-gig tuning session with no tuners, or maybe let one guy tune to a tuner, and then we're all going to tune to him. I think a guitar would be a great choice for that. Mid-range instrument, not tons of overtones like a banjo. The bass, you know, a lot of people have a hard time hearing those real low pitches. Like, you know, if the guy hits a G on his bass or the low E, and then you're going to tune your high E mandolin string to it several octaves away, you know, that requires more guesswork where the guitar is in the middle. So I think it'd be a, a great exercise to say, okay, let the guitar player tune to the tuner, and then we're all just going to tune to him. And we're all going to sit here quietly and let each player do it without practicing our kickoff to old home place while the mandolin player is trying to get his unisons in tune. Go through that little process. If nothing else, it's going to uh, build listening skills to listen to each other. And maybe that will carry over into your playing as well. 
All right, that's enough for this episode. I had a whole bunch of other stuff. I was going to talk about all the different types of uh, tuning devices that I've owned over the years, and and I've had a bunch, and I've had some junky ones. Um, I've gone through a whole bunch of these little clip-ons. One time, a, a buddy of mine who has a uh, – well, anyway, he wheels and deals and all this stuff. I was up at his place one time. And he had a case of, of clip-on tuners there, and it was about six different kinds. And I was doing some swapping and trading with him and stuff, and I came away with like 20 tuners of about six different varieties. And I was I bought them for a couple bucks a piece and was going to resell them to my students because, you know, a lot of times students would walk in, they wouldn't have one. I'd say, well, here, I got a, I got a bunch of them over here. So I tried them all out on different instruments. And it was, it was really eye-opening because I had gone along for many years using that little Korg and just toting it around with me to gigs. And, you know, I had a tuner. I didn't need a tuner. So I, I wasn't shopping for all these things. So I had this whole bunch of tuners to test. So I tried them all out on, on banjo, on fiddle, on bass. On, and some of them I said, this thing works great on the bass. And it does not work worth a crap on the banjo. <laughs> you know? And uh, they were different. They behaved differently. And some of these were made by the same company and some were not. And a couple of times at jam sessions, I've carried four or five of them around in my case. And I'd see somebody that didn't have a tuner. I'd say, hey, I got some tuners, eight bucks a piece. <laughs> Here, which one you want? I'd pull out four or five of them, new in the box, you know. And some of them were pretty good for certain certain uses. And I, I still use one of those on my Dobro. That's the only clip-on tuner I carry around. I, I kind of uh, cherry-picked the lot and found the one I really like the best. And uh, I, I don't have it handy or I'd tell you what it is. I really liked it and and still use it. But one time I was at this jam and... This guy was looking at all those tuners. I was showing somebody else these tuners, and he said, oh, you know, I, I kind of like that one right there. And he's looking at it. He says, I'll trade you this snark for that one. And I just did it. I was like, I didn't need it, but I thought, well, what the heck? I have wanted to try out one of these snarks. So I took the snark, and, I, you know, I'm sure the snark has gone through several variations. And snark people, you know, I'm not bashing your product. I've only experienced one snark tuner in my life, even though I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of them out there in use. I tried it on the banjo, completely worthless to me. I guess, I don't know, it just couldn't lock on to the pitch. Guitar, better, much better. Bass, it just wouldn't hear my E string. I don't know why, it just too low, I don't know. It would not, didn't work. So anyway, I just to give it a fair shake, I used that thing for a few weeks. And of course, the little plastic, the little arm, you know, it's got a clamp and a little curvy arm. And then the thing sticks on Well, the little socket broke. And so it was useless. And I just threw it away. So that was the end of my snark experience. Uh, you know, perhaps the current run of snarks is are great. I don't know. I'll probably never know because I doubt I'll ever buy one. Anyway, that's enough talking about tuning gizmos. I would just encourage you to um, try out the old style of tuning. You like the old style of music? Maybe try the old style of tuning. Maybe it'll get you thinking that being in tune with each other has more to do with pitches. Maybe being in tune with each other means getting your minds together and getting yourselves listening to each other, you know?
Like there are days that me and my wife are in tune with each other. And there are days when we're completely out of tune, you know? So I'm talking about tuning as a metaphor for how you interact with other people. And if you want to play good music, you better be interacting and you better be listening. So maybe going through that ritual of old timey tuning, Hey, give me an A, you know, maybe that'll help move you in that direction and make your music better. Hey y'all, thanks for listening. And as always, remember that this podcast is brought to you by BradleyLaird.com, my little business where I sell the instructional videos, ebooks, and courses. And when you purchase something there, not only do you get the the valuable instructional material contained therein, but you're also helping the show continue. So thanks a bunch. Visit BradleyLaird.com and uh, get your virtual wallet out. <laughs> And y'all take care, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast.